Legends about the Fountain of Youth have existed for thousands of years. In spite of rumors about discovery in Florida, the real Fountain of Youth comes from tapping into the growing research on longevity, the practical steps any of us can take to improve the quality and potentially quantity of the years we have remaining in this thing called life. Welcome to the Catalyst Health, Wellness, and Performance Coaching Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Brad Cooper, co-founder of the Catalyst Coaching Institute. Today's guest is orthopedic surgeon and author, Dr. Howard Lukes. I first discovered Dr. Lukes on Twitter. I've known hundreds of orthopedic surgeons over my 30-plus years as a physical therapist. This guy didn't sound like any ortho I'd ever met. He encouraged skipping the MRI, holding off on surgery, and more. His credentials were impeccable when he agreed to join us way back in episode number 70 to discuss orthopedic myth-busting. You made it one of our most popular episodes of all time. We've continued to communicate regularly over the years since, and with the release of his new book, Longevity Simplified, we just had to get him back on the show. You're going to love this one, and likely you're going to be sending it to your cynical friends who still think running is bad for your knees, MRIs tell us everything, and longevity is just based on luck. We'll have links to both his book and his Twitter account in the podcast description. If you're an employer and trying to figure out a way to move from a check-the-box wellness program to one that actually helps create lasting, meaningful change, please reach out. We've been partnering with organizations large and small at U.S. Corporate Wellness since 2007, and we'd be happy to discuss ideas anytime. You can reach us through the Catalyst Coaching Institute, results at catalystcoachinginstitute.com if you'd like to talk it through. For everyone else, did you know you can get hoodies, t-shirts, stickers, and even coffee mugs to share the Be a Catalyst vision with the world, and every single penny of profit goes to charity. With the holidays just around the corner, now's a great time to get those orders in. All the details in the podcast description. And please, send us a picture of you with your gear. We love those. Now, it's time to follow the simplified pathway to longevity with Dr. Howard Lukes on the latest episode of the Catalyst Health, Wellness, and Performance Coaching Podcast. Dr. Lukes, welcome back. It is so good to have you. Good to see you. Thanks, Brad. It's great to be back. Several years ago, when we were laughing about how long it's been, your episode turned out to be one of our most popular we ever had. The, the insights from the orthosurgeon side, just so different. I mean, that's why we had you on originally. It was so different from, as a PT for 30 years, what I had heard from who knows how many other orthos. Let's hit a few of those. We talked about them before, but just do a little reset here, because I think some of the folks that maybe didn't hear you before, or it's been a while, are going to say, wait, no, what? First one is arthritis a result of too much activity or overuse? That is such, I still hear that now in spite of all the research that I think is I've out there. For 20, I've heard it for 20 years and I'm probably going to hear it until I finally retire. Um, no, uh, for the vast majority of you, osteoarthritis is not the result of wear and tear. It's not a result of your running uh, five to 10 miles a day. Um, that's not to say that ultras are not uh, good good for your knees. Sure. Uh, they're probably not. Sure. However, uh, you're not wearing your knee out by lifting weights, by playing tennis, by dancing, and by enjoying yourself. Osteoarthritis is a biological phenomenon. It's not a mechanical phenomenon. So you can rest assured that you can enjoy your activities. Don't tell your friends that they shouldn't run because they're wearing out their knees. And if your doctor says it, well, new doc, I won't go any further. Yeah. <laughs> Find a new doc. Uh, although l- let's do run down that path a little bit, literally run it. Um, they, they're in with their doc. They've been with this family practice doc for, let's say 20 years. Now their knees start to hurt them. So they have this relationship with the doc. There's a lot of trust there. And the doc doesn't know the research. And so he or she right. says, yeah, maybe you should back off on the tennis. You should back off on the running. What, what, what can that person do? Yeah. So, well, hopefully see a specialist who can throw some further insight. Okay. On, on this topic. Uh, but a lot of the research even shows that walking is probably the best exercise for your knees. Any joint replacement surgeon, and I do replace knee joints, will tell you that the folks who keep their knees the longest are those who stay the most active mm. and the strongest. Mm. So 
leg weight training is of critical importance for many reasons, including osteoarthritis. Yeah, you and I both have our gyms. We like to get in there, get our squats done, the, the safe deadlifts, those kind of things. For the person who's just hearing this and saying, yeah, I, I could probably start doing that, what would be a good starting point for them? So let, let's say they're in their late 50s, early 60s, or even late 40s, and they're saying, yeah, I want to integrate that, but I'm not one of those gym rats. What, what, where, whatever I start. Right. You know, there are a lot of services available now. Uh, online uh so you can digitally uh work with a trainer um i do suggest that you start with someone um under their guidance to make sure you're doing the exercises properly and maybe you do have some pain with certain motions that doesn't mean you can't work out no one says that when you squat your butt has to hit the floor yes amen <laughs> you know, if you're bending your knees it works yeah. um you know so but you can work with a physical therapist. You can work with a personal trainer in your region. You can do it digitally or online, um, but work with someone to find the exercises that are going to work for you and that you feel that you can continue doing. So you mentioned the pain piece. Um, I think that's, that's something we're talking about too, because there seems to be a difference between pain as in I'm working my muscle and so this is a little bit sore and acute pain that I'm causing an issue. Can you walk us through that a little bit and how, because the, the athletes used to it, they're just like, in fact, they probably go too far. Oh yeah, it's nothing. I'll just work through it. But the person that maybe activity hasn't been a big part of their life, they're afraid of, and I'm not exaggerating using that word. They're afraid of the pain and that, that let's just say they're doing some sit to sand stuff, really basic but they sure. feel it in their quads and they see that as pain. Can you help us distinguish between the acute I'm causing a problem pain and this is just how the body responds to doing something you're not used to doing. Sure. So look, I'm, I'm banging on the door of 60 uh, and there isn't a workout that I start when things don't hurt. <laughs> so <laughs> 10 minutes into the workout, I can do 40 push-ups straight. When I first get down on the floor, when I first get down on the floor, I do five squats, five to 10 push-ups, five to 10 curls, shoulder presses, just to get my, my muscles get moving, the blood moving. Mm -hmm. And all of those hurt. But hurt. It, it described that for people that are saying, well, wait, wait, right. what so do you mean? It, it just hurts. It's just, it's I, just not I realize, comfortable. correct. I realize that my joints are moving, right? It's not a seamless pain-free process. Um, it's not like talking to you right now. It's, it's bothering me. Uh, not enough that I need to stop. I'm not afraid that I'm hurting myself, but I realize that everything's just trying to get moving. And 10 minutes later, I'm fine and I have no pain and I may wake up a little sore the next day, but again, it doesn't affect my activities. I'm not worried about an injury. Um, if you develop pain to the point that you're, you know, upset or worried and it involves a joint, um, by all means, talk to someone and we can, can guide you through that. I can't tell you how many times in my office um, I'm helping guide someone into an exercise program, walking them back off the cliff, walking them through a better warm-up program, uh, and an introduction to exercise programs. So that introduction is going to take place over a month, not over a week. Where yeah, and, and we have to keep in mind that for most people, exercise, weight training, running, riding is work. It's work. It's painful. It's annoying. And they don't like the idea of it. So that's why, you know, if we build into it slowly, we can create good habits for exercise that aren't painful to achieve and start up with. And we'll dive in because that's a big part of your, your book, Longevity Simplified. Let's briefly talk about MRIs and a little bit with shoulder stuff. Why might an MRI not not be the best next step because that seems to be the natural course. Oh, I've got this thing. Okay, let's get an MRI and then we'll go next. And you say, uh, let's let's hit the, the the 
punch the brake a little bit here. Yeah. So the biggest issues with MRIs uh, routinely for every joint ache or pain, especially those that spontaneously occur, um, is that we are going to find age appropriate, normal expected issues in your joints. If you are over the age of 40, there's an 80% chance we're going to find something wrong with the disc. If you're over 40, there's a significant double-digit percentage chance that we're going to find something in your rotator cuff. We're going to find a labral tear, a meniscus tear, et cetera. So for some people, you know, they'll take that information, they'll realize that they're feeling better, and they'll be able to go back out. And their clinician or their orthopedist will support them in that endeavor. Some people, however, listen, medicine is a business. (laughs) Medicine thrives on relative value units or productivity, and they make more money if they operate. Um, And that's a sad truth. And so what if you're a 45-year-old runner, 50-year-old runner, your knee starts hurting one day? Uh, Not awful. Maybe the knee's a little swollen. You rush into the doctor, they rush you in, they see a posterior horn tear of your medial meniscus. Okay. Most common place for that tear. Um, and many of us runners have them. I have them in both knees, never been operated on, and I've never stopped running. Um, now, what if that person has said, oh, you, you have a meniscus tear, now you need an operation? Well, one, you know, if you wait, uh, enough, sometimes two months or so. Um, I'm going to jump back to that in a second. Many people until told in orthopedics, oh, it'll be, it'll be four to six, six weeks. weeks. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing gets better at our oh, age in four I love to six that. weeks. Yep. Right? It's yep. two to six months. Um, so, one, folks aren't waiting long enough, um, and they think uh, mistakenly that surgery is the quick answer, that their knee scope is going to go great. It's nothing, two small holes. I'll be, bounced, I'll be bouncing up and around in a week. Not true. Not even close. I'm sure there's going to be a few out there who, who are throwing things at the screen now saying that I did feel better, but you're in the minority. So now we've set in a process, we've set in place a process where, where osteoarthritis is going to set in. It's going to set in a lot more rapidly now because that piece of meniscus was removed. Yeah. Uh, and now we're going uh, to be dealing with someone with persistent knee pain and osteoarthritis, and they still can't run. Um, and if you know any friends who've recovered from shoulder surgery, you, you know it can be a six to twelve month process. At least, it's annoying. Um, sometimes you don't fully recover from it. You remain a little stiff, etc. Um, uh, so there's no need to rush into finding these age appropriate findings. We know what's going to be there. As a matter of fact, if I order a knee MRI or shoulder MRI for a patient based on their age. Before they leave my office with the prescription, I tell them, I'm expecting to see this, 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 and this. Don't worry about that. What we're looking for is this Mm. or that, Mm. something different, something unique. Um, That's a very important part of utilizing testing. Um, You need to inform the patient because now they all have their reports uh, before they get back to your office. And as I have a, a post on my website on, you can never unsee your MRI report. Right. Right. So you're a tennis player. You had a shoulder MRI. You know you have a partial cup tear. Every serve that you hit or overhead you hit, your shoulder hurts. You're thinking you're tearing your shoulder more. So there are times for MRIs. Utilize them often. But there's many times where we just shouldn't get them. And folks, I just want to remind you. This is an orthopedic surgeon saying this. This is not a guy selling supplements and saying, oh, yeah, you don't need any of that medical stuff. Like, this is what he does for a living. All right, let, let's jump into the book a little bit. Uh, the, the forward to your book, Dr. Kudowski notes, you changed his life with the following question. So I think we need to start with that. The question was, what are you optimizing for? 
first of all, why is that such a critical question? I've got some thoughts, but I want to hear your words. And, and how might someone listening begin to explore their answer to that question in their own lives? Because I love that yeah. question. I love, love, <laughs> love that question. So it's an interesting issue. I, first of all, um, I wrote this book for as wide a swath of an audience as possible. You know, people who are down all these longevity rabbit holes with yes. supplements and restrictive diets and elimination diets, etc. This is not for you. Um, but this is relevant to everyone who doesn't like to exercise as well as those who are exercising, but not with a trained professional or guide. So, you know, Paul, especially Dr. Kudrowski was interesting. When we first, first started conversing years and years ago, he was sending me uh, the data on his runs and he was so proud of, you know, his heart rates of 180, 190. You know, look, I ran 5,000 feet vertical today. Yeah, and I'm showing him mine. We're running with a heart rate of 125, <laughs> 130. And he's just thinking I'm a weak soul. And we just started to get into it over the years. Um, and he started to realize that his approach to running, training, and exercising was probably hurting him in the end. It certainly wasn't offering him the benefits that he thought that he was getting. Um, and fast forward to the future, when we look at his AT or his aerobic threshold that has continually risen. Mm. Um, you know, it started off in the 115s to 120s and has steadily gone up and up and up as he's adopted a more polarized schedule uh, and a love for, well, maybe not a tolerance <laughs> for zone two activities. So when I'm sitting with someone and we're working out an exercise program or a training program, my goal as a runner is to be able to continue running for as long as possible. I don't care where I finish in any event. Uh, I really don't. You could, you could pass me a hundred times uh, and walk backwards. You can lap me and I'm going to be smiling because I'm enjoying my race. I'm optimizing for longevity. It's the reason why I pay attention to what I eat. It's the reason why I go to sleep early early enough to get eight hours of sleep um, and exercise is part of that. Um, but there are some people who do want a podium and do want to achieve and do want to excel. And that's fine. Um, but I need to know this. So I'll always start with that conversation. Why are you running? Why are you doing triathlons? Why are you doing this? Um, and when we, when we figure out what, what, what they're optimizing for, we're going to adjust the training schedule accordingly. You know, I do run a polarized training schedule, but I'm nine, I'm 95%, 5% as opposed, you know, to others who, who, who are 80 and 20. I don't need to hit that, you know, the VO2 max heart rate and any more than a few minutes every week. That's painful. It, it, it is. And, and, and I love the question because it also looks at the other side of things. So Paul, Paul was wanting to get faster. It sounds like as part of this, uh, you brought the longevity piece into that. And I think a lot of people, their goal is more along the lines of what you said. Maybe it's not even, I want to run as long as possible. It's, I want to be active as long as possible. And my running supports that my cycling supports that my lifting supports that. Is, is that part of what you're talking about? Absolutely. So I look out in the future and I said, what do I want to do when I'm 85 mm -hmm. and 90 mm -hmm. years old? And I want to be a runner. I want to be active. I want to be lifting and working out. I don't want to have issues lifting a suitcase to the overhead bin, yeah. hauling mulch around my yard, right. whatever. Um, and so the exercises that I'm doing today, prioritize me being able to do those activities. And that also means not not running myself into the ground. You know, I don't need to run seven minute miles every day. I'm okay running 10 minute miles. A lot of folks, they, they say, well, I'm slowing down because I'm older. I, I'm weaker because I'm older. There is a small percentage of that. I think the numbers are something like 5% a decade after age 30. Um, but 
in my mind, if I'm slowing down any more than that, that's me choosing to slow down. That means because I haven't been as active as, as would support my active lifestyle, it's because I haven't been lifting. I, any thoughts along those lines of the difference between age-related changes and habit-related changes or lifestyle-related changes? Because in my mind, it's generally, we know the first is there, but we're right. giving far too much credence to part A when it's really based more so on part B. Right. Yeah, I agree. There, There is uh, an age-related decline in VO2 max and muscle strength, et cetera, um, which also brings up sarcopenia. We, you know, we have an age-related decline in muscle mass and thus muscle strength. Um, that doesn't need to be the norm. We can in- influence these numbers to some extent. Um, you know, I've managed to maintain maintain a VO2 max of 54. You know, it's it's down from 60 and 58, but I'm still doing better than an inactive college college student. Right. Um, so I am experiencing a decline. I am getting slower. Um, but I do think you're right. I think that we program ourselves in thinking I'm older, I should run less. I'm older, I should do less. I'm older. No, um, you need to look forward and you see all these people on walkers, they're hunched over, they're on canes, they're unstable. They have difficulty arising from a chair. They're tripping and falling. You know, we don't have to be that person when we get older, if we're uh, active and independent now, yeah. we can control that destiny to a very large extent. Yeah, yeah. good. Uh, all right, metabolic health versus metabolic fitness. What, what, what do you mean by that? What's the distinction and, and why does it matter? Humans die of very predictable causes, right? We die of blood pressure, the secondary effects of that, the downstream effects of cardiac disease, type 2 diabetes, uh, dementia, and so on. If you, if you look at all these diseases, they have the basic same root cause, and that's poor metabolic health. Poor metabolic health derives its root cause from poor mitochondrial function or poor mitochondrial flexibility. We start to see changes in the mitochondria and how it processes energy 15 or 20 years prior to when we're going to recognize these downstream manifestations of poor metabolic health. When we have, you know, to back up a little, um, we need to process energy in the form of ATP to be able to, to move our muscles, move blood around our body. We have two predominant means of doing so. We can burn glucose, called glycolysis, glycolysis. We can burn fat, fat oxidation. Fat oxidation is the preferred method of producing energy for most all of our daily activities. Um, only, only people who run uh, above what's called their aerobic threshold a certain heart heart rate and workload will start to go majority into glycolysis. When we experience poor metabolic health, we start to diminish the mitochondrion's ability to oxidize fat for ATP and instead prefer to use glucose. Um, With many metabolic conditions, we develop insulin resistance So our pancreas, which makes insulin, drives our blood glucose down. A high blood glucose level is poisonous to the body. Um, And over time, it starts to require more units of insulin in the blood to affect the same degree of lowering glucose. And that continues uh, years over years. Then you reach the point in some people where uh, your body has produced so much insulin that it can no longer produce it. That's when you become an insulin dependent diabetic, et cetera, but you don't have to be an insulin 
depend diabetic to suffer all the manif- manifestations of poor metabolic health. It's estimated that uh, 25 to 35% of cases of dementia are preventable um, with better metabolic conditioning, uh, heart disease, stroke risk, uh, your risk of type 2 diabetes, your risk of fatty liver, um, and obesity. And actually, there's a paradox there. I don't want to go down that hole. Um, People who tend to weigh more tend to be more metabolically healthy to some extent. So let's not equate metabolic fitness and health with weight. Um, I've seen, I've seen plenty of people who are thin, uh, who have horrible metabolic health and those who are overweight, who have fantastic metabolic health. So I don't want to go down that rabbit hole, but, um, if we're going to improve our ability to, to live longer and to diminish our chronic disease burden, we're going to have to correct our metabolic health and our metabolic fitness. Um, okay. So the, the, the core areas, that, and I want to get into your seven areas, your, your primary steps to longevity here in a moment, but uh, a big part of it seems to be the zone two training. You mentioned it in an earlier question. What does that mean for the person that's not familiar with that? Uh, do you need a heart rate monitor to be able to do that? How does this differ from, the norm, is it going back to the old talk test with running that can you talk while you're running? Well, that means you're probably, or is that a completely different component? Walk us through this zone two training, because this is yeah, a sure. big part of what you're doing here. So um, how can, there are various ways that we can tell what energy systems you are utilizing uh, in your body, whether you're oxidizing fat or burning glucose. We can measure your expired air in a lab or to tell, to tell whether you're burning glucose or fat. We can also check your blood lactate. These are little, little test kits, very similar to, to a glucose monitor. Um, lactate is produced by glycolysis. Um, so if you can imagine someone like us, a well-trained runner, we're walking around, we have a blood lactate of 0.8 to 1. As we start to push a little higher, we're going up to 1, 1.2. When we hit our aerobic threshold, we're going to be about 2 millimole, about 1.8 to 2 millimole. And then we're just going to go straight up from there, uh, up to our, 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 our lactate threshold and beyond. So lactate is a great clue as to where you are on that curve um, in terms of your metabolic health because I've brought my lactate meter to work. I've tested people sitting on the uh, exam stool in in front of me and they have a resting blood lactate of 1.8 to 2.1. That means that they are burning mostly glucose at rest or with a little walk up up and down the hallway. That means that fat oxidation is almost non-existent in them. This is a picture of very poor metabolic fitness, very poor metabolic health. Someone who's not going to live as long as they should. Um, and of course you've, you've seen the, uh, the, Curves of life expectancy. The curve of life expectancy in the United States is flat to going down. That's compared to all other developed countries where it continues to go up. The problem is poor metabolic health. I really try to simplify this as much as possible in the book. Um, And so my goal of prescribing exercise to someone is we need to stimulate the fat oxidation system. How do we do that? We do that by keeping someone below that aerobic threshold so that we're trying to exercise the mitochondria. We're trying to get them to create more mitochondria. The mitochondria can become more efficient because there are enzymes and proteins with that and transporters within the mitochondria that will start to fun- function better if we train them. 
That's why we get better as we run further. Um, and so if I have a baseline idea of where your lactate is at rest or with walking, for over 50% of, my, uh, of people in my office, they just need to walk. Mm. That's why I say walk, walk often and occasionally w- with ferocious intent. Because honestly, for more than half of Americans, that probably gets them to their lactic, to their, uh, to their aerobic threshold. So there's no need to go further. Um, but now we have all the runners amongst us, right? We all see them out on the trails uh, they're running by us, huffing and puffing. They look miserable, you know, their mouths wide open and catching <laughs> bugs. Uh, you know, these folks yeah, need to understand that that way of training, you know, they're in this moderate intensity rut. So they're not getting better. Yep. They're not getting faster. They're not going stronger than they can't they can't go longer. They misinterpret that data and they say, ah, I have to push harder. And then they push harder and they're still getting slower. They're not getting faster and they push harder. Now we get into overtraining and everything else. Um, and they increase their injury risk and a lot of other things that come along with that. And they're burning glucose, right? They're, they're going, they're way above their aerobic threshold. Um, they're creating lactate. Um, they're burning glucose. They're not uh, increasing their fat oxidation systems nearly as much as they would if they relied more on zone one and zone two activities with regards to heart rate. Um, and it, it doesn't end well for these runners. You know, they're dissatisfied. They're not achieving what they would want to achieve, and they're not getting the health same health benefits f- from their efforts as they might think. Mm. So checking that, we haven't touched on the heart rate monitor, but I want to come back to the glucose meter. You said you brought your one from home, so that obviously means you've got one you're my, checking my yourself. My lactate meter. Your, your lactate meter. So yeah. is that something you would recommend, not to everyone, but is that something that for the person that's listening saying, well, how do I figure out what my mitochondria is doing? What, what is the, I know there's some tests for that as well in the lab. But what are your suggestions with that? With somebody yeah. listening saying, oh, so what do I do? I'm really curious now. Average person, you know, just have your physician check your blood lactate when you go for, for your annual physical. Um, it's something that some doctors do. Um, I don't think they, yeah, uh, they don't necessarily interpret it the way that I do. And they'll just say your lactate's fine, but fine can mean under three. <laughs> Got it. Got it. So you're not saying, hey, it's worth it. Go get one. You're, you're doing no. that because of the role that you play. Correct. Okay. Fair enough. Um, all right. One of my favorite authors, Nassim Nicholas Tlaib, provided a testimony for your book. He, he, he talks a lot about the Lindy effect, the, the, the fact that things last longer, the whole deli in New York thing, that seems to be connected with some of your perspectives. Any interesting conversations the two of you have had with this Lindy effect and some of the things you're talking about over the years? No, we actually, we are digital friends. Okay. We have yet to go out for dinner. Uh, we're planning it soon. Um, he, he, was like Paul, you know, an effort based person pushing heart rate, absolutely uh, pushing his effort. And he does an enormous amount of aerobic work. So him becoming a convert has had tremendous benefits from him. Mm. You know, that he's, he's sharing widely for all of us to see on Twitter. It's been fascinating. I love it. Look, I, I get sent curves from, from people every day. Um, look what I've been doing, look where I was and look where I'm at. So it's the, the zone two, the need for more zone one, zone two aerobic and metabolic training is, is clearly starting, starting to resonate. And is it applied to the, not that you talked about the person that's stuck in the middle, but does it apply to the, maybe not elite athlete, but the sub elite, the person that says, 
hey, I still want to, you, you talked about podium, I still want a podium. Do you use that? Would you, and I know this isn't the focus of your book, but would you suggest that from your experience for the person that says, look, I'm not trying to win. I'm, I'm past the Olympic years, blah, blah, blah. But yeah, I, I still want a podium at that marathon or that local 10K or something. Do you stay in the zone two five days a week and throw in the intervals and the temple run the other times? Or what? what is your thought along those lines? Yeah, so I'm obviously not a professional trainer for this level of athlete. But if you talk to Alan Cousins, mm-hmm. Steven Seiler, et cetera, these guys, you know, are are staunch, staunch proponents of a polarized approach Mm -hmm. with the majority being in that respect, you know, for semi elites, it's mostly zone one for the 80% because zone two is hard work and is stressing their system. Mm -hmm. Okay, good. Uh, Let's jump into the seven steps. So we don't need to cover all of them or if you want to hit them briefly, but what are, two or three of them that have grabbed people's attention that you're getting a lot of feedback on, or maybe surprised people out there. I'd say zone two sleep, uh, and muscle mass, okay. uh, are the ones that, that tend to be grabbing, grabbing people the most. Um, they all understand that, uh, heart conditions exist and how they can approach their life to improve that. Um, but I think that the way I included enough of the scientific background and draw the drew all the associations, how it all is knit together to affect our metabolic health and then results in all these other other manifestations. That's what's resonating most, right? They've heard they're dementorists, they've heard this, they've heard they should exercise, but they never understood the why. Mm. Um, and actually, there's a fair amount of research that's been published that says that our patients don't want to know it. <laughs> Is that right? And that, and that the more that you say you're not necessarily get, getting better scores, graded better, or, or have happier patients, I think that's nonsense. Uh, it's the same articles that say you should wear a white coat, which I haven't done in 25 years. So I've always thought that the more you teach, the more you educate, uh, the better people are going to 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 understand the why. Why do I need to do this? You know, and do I want to do it, etc. So um, muscle mass has been a big one um, because it plays a huge role in our ability to uh, remain active, remain independent. Um, be able to recover from an injury, be able to recover from a fall. Um, we, we, we see our parents aging. We see them, we see them using walkers. We see them struggling to get up from a chair or, or up a staircase or three stoops, three steps on your stoop to, to enter your house. Um, this doesn't need to be us. We just mentioned it, but the process of sarcopenia really should be a four letter word. It's the age program muscle loss um, that occurs. There's a reason why you see these very thin cachectic limbs uh, in people who are wearing shorts. And it's not because um, it's not just a very thin person. They have lost all their muscle mass. Um, While it's very challenging to reverse sarcopenia, it is not challenging to prevent sarcopenia or prevent it from diminishing our muscle mass as much as it wants to. Um, And also included in the muscle mass chapter is how it relates back to insulin resistance Mm. and poor metabolic health because Muscle acts as your largest glucose sink in your body. It wants to hold the glucose in the form of glycogen. You have issues with storing glycogen in muscles if you have really severe insulin resistance. So the more exercise you get, the more muscle mass we have, the more ability that we have to store glycogen, the better uh, our mitochondria will function. And as we all know, while... 
at rest, we need insulin to drive to drive glucose into into our cells. When we're exercising, we have insulin independent systems that will drive glucose in, in, into our cells. So the more glucose that we can pull out of our bloodstream to maintain our glucose levels in a normal state, the better off that we are going to be. So we have a lot of coaches, health and wellness coaches listening, a lot of uh, probably personal trainers, physicians, clinicians, physical therapists. Um, Stepwise, do you you encourage the patients or do you dive into that why tied to walking first and then move to the strength training piece? Or do you lay it all out and have them try to, I, I just, my, my, what's running through my head as you're talking is I'm thinking it's, it, it's difficult to engage people in something like walking, which is incredibly simple, requires zero equipment, very little time. And now trying to nudge toward that strength training seems like a huge, it's not like a next step. It's like, here's walking and then here's lifting. What? What, what's your experience been? We, we've had the Prochaskas on with Stages of Change. We have Bill Miller talking about intrinsic motivation as our special guest for number 200. So we know this stuff. We get the intrinsic piece. We know how motivational interviewing supports that. But what has your experience been with that apparent leap between walking and strength training? The three issues that we need to concentrate on are uh, strength training, aerobics, and balance, especially balance. Yeah. Right. Yeah. 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 If, you know, if you're over 40, 45, you're stumbling a little more on rugs. Uh, you get up, you wobble a little. We don't have to live like that. You can fix that. So it's funny because I've had a bunch of people reach out about the book saying, I've gotten up and I'm squatting. I've never squatted in my life. I'm getting up. I'm, I'm doing chair squats. I have my parents doing chair, chair squats. Again, I'm going to go back to the fact that they received enough of an education in the science of how and why this works that is motivating them. It's not just someone telling them you have you to have do to. this. Right. Uh, that's wrong. Right. You, you, you can't motivate. You still can't motivate me work. by telling me, that, you know, they have to do something. Totally. You have to teach them and educate them. And once they make the decision that they want to do something now, now we walk on, it, you know, can work on it. And once we have their attention, the key is not to kill that desire, not to layer on so much in the first month or two that they're going to rethink their desire down to pursue this path. Um, so I do like to rely on just walking. We do check step counts in the office. Um, I do, I do, I do monitor their uh, chair squats or ability to, you know, to pick up a pen on the floor and get back up. Um, I think these are really important measures. Um, so we can pick up on sarcopenia and other issues very early on and then incentivize them um, to try and correct them. But if, you know, if you have an audience of therapists and trainers and, you know, and coaches, then they're dealing with a different subset of people. They're dealing with people who want to fix this. So if we approach this properly, don't force them into doing anything um, and coach them into the reasons why they should engage um, using the book as a blueprint or whatever other source as a blueprint, then I think you're, you're going to have success and a far healthier patient. Right. Let's talk steps for a moment. The the 10,000 step number has worked its way into mythology of that's the magic number. What are your guidance points for patients? Is it simply move more? I think that's a phrase you use in the book to where, Hey, you're doing 1200 now let's work towards 2000 or is there a percentage increase or is there a baseline you look for? What are some of your guidelines for that person that is just getting started? They look at their step count and they go, dang, I'm at like 900. If I'm not out for a walk with a dog. So my, my goal in, internally is 6,000. Um, and depending on where they're at 
is will determine when I mention that number to them. So as you mentioned, if I have someone who has, who has 1,200 steps for the day, I'm not talking about Six. about 6,000. No, I'm talking about two uh, or 2,500. But my goal is to get them up to six. Okay. Um, six is where you start to see very significant improvements in health and decrease in mortality rates. So you're right. The 10,000 number you know, is not relied upon. Um, it's not held as being scientifically meaningful. It has stuck and it's not going to go anywhere. But if you can get them to 6,000 and that 6,000 is spaced throughout the day. Right. So if you have someone who wakes up, runs in the morning and then hits the couch all day and they really get maybe 800 steps for the rest of the day, they're not going to derive nearly the health benefit as they would if that if they get 1500 in the morning, 1500 late morning, a thousand after lunch and then a walk after dinner. Those folks are going to be doing far better than someone who walked 6,000 steps in the morning and then sat on their ass. And the person, a certain percent of the population likes to be tracking every little thing. They hear you say 6,000 is the target, and they say, but Doc, on my bike riding days, I don't get any because the thing doesn't monitor that. Do you have them put it around their ankle? Do you say, hey, let's just count an hour as 6,000? What, what's your con- Or the weight training, same thing. You spend an hour in the gym, that's awesome, and yet your Garmin or Aura or whatever doesn't even know you moved. (laughs) I don't like to rely on data that intently, but... um, But some people will come to you with that. They absolutely do. (laughs) There's no doubt. A lot of the watches have gotten a lot better at sensing movement patterns and understanding how that should be associated with step count. I have no idea the validity of this. Um, but if I'm on my bike, uh, I, I happen to wear a polar watch and there is some sort of calculation done on the back end there. Um, but you're right. I, I, if they're exercising and then they're on a bike for an hour and a gym for an hour, they're doing great. Yeah. As long as they just don't, don't go home and sit, the rest of the day, they're doing fine. So equipment, you mentioned you use a Polar. I think I've seen you mention the Aura before. What are some of your thoughts about the equipment that people that maybe don't have one or maybe the one sure. they have is old? What where Where's a good starting point? I know you're not so, sponsored by anybody, so it's really just your correct. opinion. Yeah, so Aura is not really uh, very useful for me anymore. Um, as we get older, a lot of us will, will develop certain abnormal heart rhythms, not bad ones, just abnormal. Uh, and they uh, create a very noisy, long overnight, uh, heart rate variability Mm -hmm. read. So I will use, uh, HRV for training, um, you know, by Marco Altini and it's a one minute read in the morning. I do it laying down and sitting up, um, Sitting up tens seems to be the better of the two measurements. Um, and I find that a very useful, I find it very noisy day to day, very useful on uh, two week, broader. two week and three week uh, streams. And, and I know Marco, but for those that aren't familiar, is this a resource that you use to your phone? Do you need the polar? Is it any heart rate chest strap? Do you not need that? Yeah. What What are the details with Marco's tool? So with uh, his app, it uses your phone's camera. Um, and, and it was developed around the phone camera and, and not a strap. The strap will give the RR intervals, but the uh, phone's camera has been fully validated Interesting. Uh, and works great. Interesting. That's, that's curious. Um all right, we've covered a lot of stuff. Any final words, anything else you want to throw out there? Any Anything you think we've missed that we need to touch on before we let this thing go? Yeah, you know, the book that I wrote is 
really a tool for everyone. Um, it's not just for your parents. It, it's for you and perhaps even your kids if they're in their 20s and you can you can get them to sit still and read a book. Um, these, these metabolic health issues are area under the curve issues. That means that the longer your blood pressure is elevated, the longer your A1C mm. is elevated, the longer your artery walls are exposed to LDL, um, the worse the problems are going to be downstream. As I mentioned, dementia is preventable in upwards of 30 to 35% of cases. Wow. Now, Let's back up a second. Gerald Schulman, cardiologist out of Yale, he has studied inactive, thin college students, and he has found a significant percentage of them have insulin resistance. Wow. This is in their 20s. Wow. So as we talked about, we'll start to see these early changes 15 to 20 years before we start to see the clinical manifestations of these diseases. So if we're seeing this in 19 and 20 year olds, what's going to be the burden of dementia and heart disease and poor muscle mass and poor metabolic fitness and the inability to walk upstairs without getting short of breath, inability to walk a hundred feet without getting short of breath. By the time these kids are 40, it's a tremendous burden for uh, for people. It's a tremendous burden for the healthcare system. Um, and this book just puts together enough information, enough facts for you to understand how all these systems are associated with with, with one another, how all these strategies work together. There's no elimination diets. You can eat whatever you want. Um, and uh, there's no supplements and there's no upsell. This is it. I just wrote a book. <laughs> <laughs> wow. What is wrong with you? That's awesome. That's awesome. Doc, it's so good to see you. Thanks for coming back. Love this. I know it's going to make a big difference. Thank you, Brad. It's been a pleasure getting to know Dr. Lukes and following his work over the years. Again, his book is titled Longevity Simplified, and we'll have a link to it below. Thank you for tuning into the number one podcast for health and wellness coaching. Thanks for sharing it with others if you find it valuable. With literally millions, no exaggeration, millions of podcasts available right at your fingertips, it means a lot that you've chosen to spend a few minutes with us each week, and especially when it means enough to pass it on to others. As always, feel free to reach out to us with any questions about your current or future coaching career. Results at CatalystCoachingInstitute.com or you can tap into additional health, wellness, and performance resources on the website, CatalystCoachingInstitute.com. Now, it's time to be a Catalyst. This is Dr. Brad Cooper of the Catalyst Coaching Institute. I'll speak with you soon on another episode of the Catalyst Health, Wellness, and Performance Coaching Podcast or maybe over the YouTube coaching channel.